Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Tad Michaels. The plot thickens in the We Charity scandal. Finance Minister Bill Morneau is facing calls for his resignation after admitting he only recently paid the cost of a 2017 trip to Ecuador that We covered. Professor Genevieve Tellier and Global News correspondent Abigail Beeman joined the show. Hamilton's Chamber of Commerce announced it's joining Canada United, a national movement to support local businesses across the country. We get the details on what this could mean locally. And the bid for the Jays to play in Pittsburgh has been rejected. Strike two. What now? How can they stay safe? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The WE scandal is deepening. Finance Minister Bill Morneau appeared before a Commons Committee investigating the WE scandal talking about how he repaid more than $41,000 in travel charges to the WE uh, charity. What was his explanation yesterday? This was a mistake on my behalf. I'm responsible for uh, any expenses that I incur on trips being paid for. Uh, This was an expense that I was unaware of, that I did not know had not been paid on now, on the other side, of course, we have the federal conservative finance critic, Pierre Bolivar, uh, who joined Global News Radio, uh, to talk about Bill Morneau and, of course, uh, asking the question, uh, rhetorical, if you will, and he asked it in the House of Commons as well, will you resign? I think because he knew he was going to be exposed, he finally came clean and admitted that he had taken $41,000 of vacation, a hospitality and transportation gifts from the WE charity. So obviously that is a massive breach of the Ethics Act. It's totally illegal. So joining us to talk about this for the next few minutes is a professor of the School of Poli Sci at the University of Ottawa, Genevieve Tellier. Genevieve, good morning. You know, it's the summertime. It's supposed to be calm in Parliament Hill, and this clearly is not the case. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. It's far from being very calm here. So let me, let me, let me ask you this question. And, you know, if somebody offers me a trip worth thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars to uh, Ecuador or Peru or someplace else, I would ask questions. Is Bill Morneau, did, did he really have no idea that this would cause a lot of controversy? Um, it's difficult for me to imagine. Right. And, and his defense is to say, well, I forgot, but it's also difficult for me to forget <laughs> about a trip of that nature. Uh, and the first thing, first of all, I w- if I were minister, I would be aware of the Ethics Act. Uh, I would know what I am allowed to do and not to do, especially if I was caught for the first time, as it was the case for Bill Morneau. It was it's not the first time. I mean, the Ethics Commissioner already blamed him for previous decision. Uh, I don't know if you recall, but he had a residence in south of France right. that he did not disclose, and so that was a breach, and uh, he was told about that. So I would be extra cautious to make sure that maybe not me, but my my staff would help me uh, navigate into all those administrative uh, rules and, and be very clean about that. Uh, you have to be wider than white uh, when you are in a position, uh, official position, um, with such responsibility as the Minister of Finance. And so uh, for me, I'm really puzzled to, first of all, just know that this happened, the magnitude of the, of the, the gift and um, the, the, the defense that it is simply a honest mistake. That should not happen. It should not happen as the second or third time, which is the case now. So very puzzling. Now, Morneau was already being investigated by the Essex Commissioner because his daughter works for WE, the charity that we know that awarded that uh, $912 million contract from the federal government. Uh, again, that's something that Bill Morneau uh, was being investigated about. And again, you know, uh, Genevieve, I'm I, I'm almost now, as a, as a tax-paying Canadian, I'm almost getting tired of politicians getting up and basically issuing a mea culpa, my fault, I'm sorry, let's move on. And this has been going on, I would say, for a long time. But I mean, uh, with the Gomery Commission, the, uh, the sponsorship scandal, the Liberals should know better than that. I mean, they've been to hell after that for many years because 
Canadians were frustrated at, about how they were handling the money, our money. Uh, as you said, we are taxpayer. Uh, also, this sense of entitlement, meaning that uh, we have friends and we will help our friends. And so now those new friends seem to be we charity. Uh, and so that's also questionable. So, yes, how come there is no natural instinct coming from the top? It must come from the prime minister. It must come from the main minister, all minister in cabinet, about being accountable, being transparent, uh, being ethical, knowing without having people in their entourage telling them, telling them what's right, what's wrong. They should know that themselves. And, and yes, and, and, and this is not new. And so we know it's normal. All Canadians are sensitive about how our money is handled by public officials. And to see that going on, um, to see that the ETIC Act um, is breached, uh, and we're talking about a lot of money. It's not, it's not small, a small amount. And now what happened is that I guess that most Canadians are wondering where are there other cases and probably uh, is Bill Marno the only one that went on the trip um, and did not pay for that. And so I'm sure people will be digging on that, but uh, it's not good for democracy. It's not good for our institution. Um, it's not good for us as taxpayers. And I wonder how come politicians, probably politicians of all stripes, don't pay more attention to that. You know, it's interesting because I, I sit there when a, a, a government takes office, when in this case the liberals win the re-election, or were reelected and you know maybe i live in a too simplistic world as as we all do but you almost think you know the prime minister during the first federal caucus meeting and meeting with his cabinet ministers and behind closed doors would say look if there's anything going on you better tell us you better come clean you better investigate because we don't need any type of fallout clearly that's not being done exactly and so first of all there is a vesting process so uh, uh, every person that is uh, seen as possibly becoming a minister must go to that process and make sure there is no skeleton hidden. And and then, yes, the prime minister himself must set the tone and say that he's serious about that and also um, show by example. So uh, you must act yourself as being uh, the most ethical as possible. And for me, what's puzzling is that you know, as prime minister, you don't really have time to do other things. So it may be nice to go to some uh, benevolent, uh, charitable activities and, and, and do good. But maybe it's not the time as prime minister to do it. And so to see uh, Justin Trudeau participating in events that were set up by the WE uh, organization or see members of his family doing so, is it really worth doing it? Is it really the appropriate thing to do? I don't think so. You should be focused on your job. And you should also be aware that outsiders will want to influence you. And so clearly there is a benefit for We Charity to get in touch with the cabinet or prime minister. Um, but you have to prevent that from happening. And clearly this was not the case. You know, uh, looking at what uh, Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, said uh, a couple of days ago, it's almost like not a lot of people knew about this We Charity to begin. And it's almost a case of inventing money and inventing charities because there were many other charities that could have done the work that the We Charity did. Is that a fair statement? Uh, personally, I think so, uh, and I would go even further saying that the government itself could have done the job better. I don't see why you have to outsource uh, such a program. You know, you would give a big advantage to an organization because that would be an organization that would get his hand on big database about students' names, uh, addresses, uh, other charitable organization that would hire students. And so that's a huge benefit for any organization. And on top of that, it would give a, a status, a, 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 a recognition uh, that it would benefit. Um, and so I don't see, I see the advantage for we charitable organization, but I don't see the advantage for the government. And the government has the skills, has the tools to set up such a program. They were in no rush either, because that's a program to reimburse tuition fees. So it's not going up until September. Uh, there were no immediate rush of sending money to those who have lost their job, for instance. And students had already other programs. So all that make me believe that why outsource that? First of all, it's, it's still not clear for me. Uh, public servants have been saying, well, um, we didn't have the resources. I doubt about that. I'm really not sure. I think uh, the public service had the skills and know-how how to, how to set up such a program. I'll ask
ask you this question, and I'll, I'll ask our next guest coming up in a couple of minutes the same thing. From where you sit up in Ottawa as a poly science professor at the University of Ottawa, uh, how damaging is this or could this be to the federal liberals? It could be very damaging because now maybe Canadians would be at the point saying, well, uh, now we're fed up in the sense that there have been other stories think about the SNC-Lavalier file. Uh, and maybe we would have to say, okay, let's give another chance for the government. We like the idea presented by the Liberal government. We don't necessarily like the leaders of the, the, of the government, the, the party. Um, but with this, and, and the, yesterday the testimony was quite damaging, um, and people will start wondering what, what else exists, is there out that we don't know about. And so, as I said before, this sense of entitlement that we see from the Liberal government um, could start uh, bringing some concern to many Canadians. Now, the only good thing for the Liberals is that I don't see any opposition party in a very strong place to launch an election. Conservatives are still looking for leaders. Uh, I know so, some have called for, for an election, but um, it's, it's, not, it's not done yet. Um, the only party that could maybe a bit benefit is the Bloc Québécois, but uh, that would, would that change a lot? I'm not sure. So uh, we'll see. But yes, it is amazing for the government. And on top of that, it's a minority government. So anything could happen yep. in, in, in reality. Last point, you know, we, we sit there and you talk about the opposition and uh, there's times where I'm sure Canadians are getting sick. Like it's, they see Andrew Scheer getting up and ask, asking questions and Andrew Scheer, as we know, stepped down. It's almost like he has no, if you will, power at all. It's like, does anybody really care what Andrew Scheer has to say when it comes to something like this? Yes, and uh, there's no clear line of defense from the conservative. Uh, they're using the word corruption. It's something we already heard in the SNC-Lavalin file. And the problem with that case last year was that the conservative uh, put too much, uh, it, was, it dragged too long in, uh, in the media, knowing in the sense that we knew what was the story and we have already made up our mind. But uh, the conservative was still putting some pressure. And I don't think it really benefited them at the time. So now they have to find a, a new line of defense. But without a, a leader to to show leadership and, and, and make decisions, it makes it a bit more difficult for for the opposition. But sadly, it's a time where the opposition should be strong and, and ask for more accounts from the government. Um, so we'll see how it unfolds. Uh, but as I said, I think it's the only advantage for the moment for the Liberal government. All right, Genevieve Tellier, professor at School of Poli-Sci at the University of Ottawa. Uh, this, uh, this is a very interesting story. We'll see what happens. I know the Conservatives are scheduled to speak in a few minutes, so we'll keep an eye on that and keep everybody informed. Thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Well, there you have uh, the take of a, a Poli-Sci professor um, up in, in Ottawa saying, you know, Politics is politics, and it's almost like the liberals know that they will almost get through this unscathed because there is no real power in the conservative party. She said maybe that the BQ will um, kind of maybe be the ones that will get the most out of this. But again, with uh, with Andrew Scheer as the uh, opposition asking the questions, people sometimes wonder exactly what uh, power uh, Andrew Scheer has uh, to talk about the uh, prime minister. Talk more about this in a moment. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We scandal continues. Joining us for the next few minutes to talk about this is the Global National Ottawa correspondent, Abigail Beeman. Abigail, first of all, good morning. I know you're busy. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, you know, here we are. It's summertime. Normally things are calm around the House of Commons. Not quite the case for you. How's your adrenaline level? That's a really great question. Yes, it, this is certainly a busy summer and uh, not the usual July doldrum period in, in Ottawa. You know, I, I asked the question of our last guest, and I'll ask you, like, maybe because as, quote, the average Canadian, we sit and, you know, our spiny sense goes off. If somebody offers us a gift of, oh, I don't know, $40,000, take a trip to Ecuador or Peru or something, you would think that the red lights and the red flags would go off asking where is the money coming from and why does this appear too good to be true? 
Well, uh, the way that the finance minister tried to explain himself during his testimony yesterday is that for these two trips, he says he expected to fully pay the cost of the trips, one to Kenya, one to Ecuador, both in 2017, uh, family Morneau trips. Uh, so Bill Morneau says that he had already paid 51, 52, excuse me, $52,000 out of pocket for these trips. And then they started looking through the receipts recently and couldn't find anything for the we portion of the trip. So they contacted the organization, which told them, yes, in fact, these were free trips, and the difference was $41,000. But to your point about the average Canadian here, that's exactly the line of questioning that the conservative finance critic uh, took. And Pierre Polyev said, you know, maybe the average Canadian goes on vacation and they miss a hotel bill, and then they realize, oh my goodness, I owe $400 for a couple nights in a hotel. They then pay it immediately. But, you know, the average person is not likely to miss a $400 fee and we're talking about 41000 here. Uh, so you can imagine the reaction from the opposition to this news yesterday. We're up against the clock, so we got a couple more minutes. I know that the opposition is scheduled to speak uh, soon uh, today. Will that continue the cries for the resignation of Finance Minister Bill Morneau, or are you expecting even uh, more uh, uh, heavy-handed stuff against the Liberals? Uh, well, you can certainly expect the Conservatives to continue their calls for his resignation. Uh, and like you say, we'll hear from them in just a few minutes. Uh, but what was interesting was that those calls for his resignation came right in the middle of the testimony yesterday. The opposition did not need to reflect on that. Uh, upon hearing this information, they immediately, uh, Polyev told uh, the finance minister he'd lost the moral authority to hold his position and called for that resignation. So certainly a developing story, as it has been for weeks now. Uh, but we will watch each twist and turn. We also learned late last night uh, or late yesterday afternoon the Prime Minister will be in the very same hot seat. He has agreed to testify at Finance Committee. That is an unusual move for a sitting Prime Minister. And later last night or in the evening, the Ethics Committee, a separate committee, voted to also call the Prime Minister to their committee. Now, we don't know what's happening with that request, but it does mean that another committee is, is probing this investigation. So certainly a few different threads to continue following on this story. Our guest on the Bill Kelly Show, Ted Michaels, in for Bill is Abigail Beeman, the global national Ottawa correspondent. Abigail, can and will the Prime Minister survive this? I think I, not for me to answer at uh, at this point, but we, I can say that certainly a lot of people have questions uh, about this, and I, uh, certainly Bill Morneau's survival is, is also uh, being discussed this morning, but it's certainly a situation we will be watching closely. And the other part of this, too, which perhaps people don't know, is Morneau was already being investigated because his daughter works for WE. That's another interesting tentacle of the story. That's right, and uh, yeah, we should talk about that as well. So the Ethics Commissioner is currently launching or currently uh, undergoing two investigations, one into the Prime Minister, one into Bill Morneau. Uh, Bill Morneau has uh, two daughters with connections to WE. One of his daughters currently works for the organization. We learned from his testimony yesterday. He went into quite a bit of detail about his daughters um, and their connections to WE. One of the daughter who works for WE, that contract is up next month in August. Uh, we also heard about how the we have their headquarters in Morneau's riding, so he has been familiar with the organization for a while. Uh, and so Morneau already came out and apologized. Uh, was it last week? The timeline is all running together on me. But uh, Morneau already came out and apologized, uh, saying that he should have recused himself from cabinet discussions because of his daughter's connection to we. Uh, now the ethics commissioner or the ethics commissioner is looking into that. But now Bill Morneau said in his testimony that he's asked the ethics commissioner to investigate all of this new information. So the $41,000 repayment and also the other that major revelation to come out of yesterday's testimony is that Bill Morneau said his family has made two, quote, significant donations to WE, and then he detailed two $50,000 donations that his family has made to the WE organization, one in 2018, one in June of this year for COVID-19 relief in Kenya and in Canada. And on June 25th of this year, that's when the Prime Minister announced WE would be leading the student grant program. Wow, this thing just keeps unfolding. I know the Conservatives will be speaking soon. We'll let you get to that. Abigail, thank you very much for taking time to uh, join us. We'll watch your report tonight on, on Global News and uh, and see how this thing unfolds as uh, a calm summer in Ottawa is anything but. Abigail Beeman, the Global National Ottawa Correspondent, uh, thanks very much. Grab some more coffee. Off you go. Uh, thanks for having me. All right, there's Abigail Beeman from Ottawa. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton's Chamber of Commerce is joining a national movement called Canada United to support local businesses across the country. And joining us to talk about that for the next few minutes is the president and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, Keenan Loomis. Keenan, I've seen you on Zoom calls and stuff. The first question, how are you? Are you safe and healthy? Yes, I am safe and healthy, Ted. Thanks for asking. I'm glad to hear that you're keeping Bill's seat warm and you're doing a fine job doing it. Thanks. But, uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, obviously the challenges of, of uh, professional and, and personal life, uh, you know, clashing together every single day has uh, been something that uh, we've had to put up with, my wife and I. But uh, all in all, we are doing as well as can be expected. You know, as a sidebar, there are some uh, commercials that have been airing here on CHML. They're actually quite funny. It it gets the point of people trying to work from home, maybe during a Zoom meeting, and the kids in the background yelling and screaming, and parents are trying to keep them quiet. I hope that wasn't the case with your little one. Well, no, I have sequestered them in the basement for this call and uh, and locked them down there. Although uh, I'm in my home office, which happens to also be my kitchen counter, and I've got the dishwasher running, so I hope that doesn't interfere with our uh, with our call here. So that's not, that's beautiful. The the home office is the kitchen. That's great. So so let's talk about Canada United. It's a movement to support local businesses. What was the seed that was planted that started this whole process? Well, obviously, uh, you know. The, the businesses across the country have been suffering, and it's uh, you know predominantly uh, or more so among the main street businesses, uh, the, the smaller retailers, and obviously those tied to the restaurant industry and all of that. And so you know the chamber network, um, we're a very entrepreneurial uh, sort of crew, and we thought you know obviously it was really important uh, during the pandemic to starve. The, the virus. We've been very supportive of our public health professionals and have uh, said that this is definitely the right thing to do so that we can eventually move on with the economy. And, and now it's getting to be that time where uh, people are uh, getting out more and, um, and directing their spending uh, as well um, to uh, hopefully more local businesses, and that's what we want to try to do. So we've bandied together across the country as a, as a chamber network to kick off this initiative, and uh, thankfully RBC has stepped up incredibly. Uh, you know, they, they've, they're so active on a local level, um, but uh, in this case as well, they have stepped up nationally to uh, provide that funding uh, for local businesses to create a uh, business relief fund and uh, all that they're asking is for people to visit the uh, Go Canada United website, so it's gocanada.ca, um, to use the hashtag Canada United as well. And with every click and like and follow and every video watched, uh, RBC will contribute five cents per action to the, uh, the fund. And in doing so, they've also um, gathered around 50 major large brands in Canada uh, in support as well. Um, so all in all, it's a month-long campaign that will culminate in a weekend of, uh, of supporting local businesses uh, from August 28th to 30th, where we're asking Canadians to get out and, and spend their, local, their hard-earned dollars on local businesses, have a meal, uh, et cetera, and uh, hopefully we can do our small part in getting businesses back up and running because they have suffered so greatly over the last few months. And that was my next question, Keenan. Uh, back in March and April when we all had the, you know, stay at home, work from home, businesses were closed, you could pick up food from uh, not inside the restaurant, but of course uh, outside, uh, you know, drive-by, so to speak. Uh, you must have heard some incredibly uh, sad tales from businesses that were talking to you about, we're basically hanging on by a thread here, we don't know how much longer we can do this. Yeah, it has been a, a very difficult uh, period of time. As you know, we're a member association, so we our our salaries, our organization is paid for by the thousand plus members that exist here in Hamilton. And so, when our members suffer, we suffer as well, and, and we very much feel that. So, we've been uh, doing our best to be a lifeline for those businesses over the course of the pandemic, directing them to all of the information they need. Uh, to uh, help get through this. As you know, all three levels of government are 
making policy on the fly, and things are changing uh, constantly as well. But uh, governments have been working really hard to help support small businesses, but it's just a matter of directing them to the uh, the right resources. So it has been difficult, but as you know, businesses are um, well. The best businesses are highly resilient and highly adaptive as well. And so, yes, we have heard a lot of harrowing stories, but we've also heard a lot of great stories of businesses that have adapted really quickly um, to be able to supply PPE to uh, to other companies and to um, our health professionals as well. So. You know, I would say that uh, though we have uh, certainly heard a lot of, uh, of negative stories and, and sad stories, we've heard an equally impressive number of uh, really inspiring stories as well. You know, that's the thing too, Keenan, and you kind of talked about it, that uh, it, this pandemic for uh, a number of reasons has uh, had businesses reinvent the way that they do particular business. We've seen some businesses shift gears totally from what they used to do into uh, getting healthcare stuff, like you talk about PPEs and masks and and doing things like that. And it's unfortunate that uh, those that may be, um, and it could be being a smaller business, a lack of funding and capital, but it almost seems like people in many ways have to shift quickly or uh, the end could not be uh, that promising. Yeah, it obviously you know there's there's a lot of overhead uh, associated with uh, owning a business, of course, especially a bricks and mortar business. And uh, so, what we have found is governments have been able to defer payments for uh, for the period of time you know that uh, the lockdown has uh, has been put in place. But unfortunately, a lot of those businesses are going to be facing bills. Um, when uh, when things get uh, back up and running, and so you know, again, that's that's the whole purpose behind uh, this campaign, this Canada United campaign, is to to get people again um, be mindful of where they're spending their dollars and knowing that you know these businesses need uh, an influx of, of cash right now so that they can pay the bills when when they start to come due um, some some landlords have uh, you know forgiven rent payments for the time being um, mortgages uh, we, we know the the big financial institutions have been very understanding as well and have uh, looked to uh, renegotiate the terms of their mortgages with uh, with companies and all that but again it doesn't mean that um, ultimately those bills uh, aren't uh, aren't coming due. So we're hopeful that uh, that this effort can uh, bring an influx in cash to uh, businesses uh, over the course of August, um, which for some businesses is usually a slow month. So hopefully they can make up for some of the pent up demand that. Uh, has occurred over the course of the lockdown. You know, the the other part of this too is with the U.S. Canadian border being closed. Uh, that's a that's a really good opportunity for people to, if you will, shop local. There's no point, and I know people do this, but there's no point uh, even trying to think about crossing the border. You can spend your money here and uh, support local businesses. Yeah, we we have to. We have no choice yep. but to to support local businesses, and so you know that gives us comfort as a as a, a business association and as a network across the country that uh, you know money that would have been spent in the U.S. or abroad uh, over the course of you know the last few months or over the course of this summer will now be directed uh, more locally. And and again, we're just uh, trying to try to do everything we can to make sure that uh, that those funds do get directed to our local businesses. It's a lot like those mental health campaigns and uh, so if, uh, if people need to need, need to have a comparison to, to be able to fully uh, comprehend what this is, that's that's exactly what it is. Keenan, I'm, I'm wondering now um, as we uh, get toward this campaign, which you mentioned August 28th to 30th, is there uh, some sort of a marketing campaign that will be involved with this, or are you kind of letting b- businesses basically know uh, here's the information and you can market this the way that you want? No, RBC and the, the, Ch- the Chamber of Commerce Network have done an incredible job of bringing all kinds of media partners uh, to the table. And uh, if you go to the, uh, the GoCanadaUnited.ca website, you'll see all of their logos. Uh, you will be hearing a lot. It, this campaign has just started. It uh, launched uh, yesterday. 
And uh, over the next month, you'll be hearing a lot from various media channels. So uh, do not worry about that. Keenan, when you talk to your compatriots across the country and you talk about this campaign uh, having more than 50, um, well, uh, 50 of Canada's leading brands and business associations and the National Chamber Network, did you find when you went uh, regionally and talked uh, provincially that uh, some of the issues that we're facing here in southern Ontario uh, we're also being faced by, oh, say, Saskatchewan or Alberta uh, when it comes to the pandemic, or was every region, like the cases, kind of on a case-by-case basis? Well, I think uh, at the very beginning, everybody was experiencing the same thing. But um, as the numbers started to come forward in each, each uh, locality and each province, um, you know, I, I think that it it really painted a picture that um, COVID was really a problem in in the larger uh, urban centers in Canada and uh, many other localities in the in the uh, across the nation, including I, I was just up in the Kawarthas uh, a week ago, and you know they haven't had much of um, many cases up there at all, and so you know they they have a lot more lax attitudes. Um, but obviously, you know, every business across the country, except for those that are in the PPE supply industry um, or uh, in the supply of, uh, of consumer staples, um, every business has been hurt uh, across the country. So, you know, it doesn't matter if, if your revenue is down 10% or 75%. It's uh, still a struggle, obviously, to continue to pay overhead and to continue to employ all of the all of the people within your uh, your business family. Our guest is the president and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, Keenan Loomis. If you're just joining us, uh, Canada United uh, has been announced. It's a program uh, that helps local businesses. Keenan, in the last few minutes before we wrap up again, you're asking people to support local businesses if they haven't done so already. A big weekend, August 28th to 30th. So that's the weekend before Labor Day, correct? That's right. Yeah, so we're asking uh, everybody in Canada to go to the uh, GoCanadaUnited.ca website uh, to watch videos to uh, on social media. Use the hashtag CanadaUnited, and uh, every time you do so, RBC contributes five cents to a uh, small business relief fund that uh, will grow over the course of the next month. And and then um, small businesses can go to the the Go Canada United uh, website to see how they can get up to uh, $5,000 to offset the costs of PPE or, or renovations or upgrading their e-commerce capabilities or what have you. Um, and uh, this is obviously a way to, to help direct our, our spending to uh, those small businesses that need us now more than ever. Keenan Loomis uh, from the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Congratulations on this initiative. We'll keep an eye on it going forward. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. I guess you can unlock the basement door and let uh, everybody out now. Well, maybe not right now. Maybe I'll give it an hour or so. <laughs> thanks for having me All on. Right. Keenan, thank, Keenan Loomis, thanks very much. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Pennsylvania announced yesterday that the Jays won't be allowed to play at PNC Park in Pittsburgh. Uh, General manager of the Jays, Ross Atkins, is focused on finding the safest option for his players, clearly. We have health and safety as a priority. Uh, the, the players' feedback and um, you know, their, pers- their perspective is exceptionally important to us. We're working very hardly with major, very hard with with Major League Baseball, um, you know, to come up with the most viable, realistic, safe options for our team. Now, ESPN's Jeff Passan said the Jays don't know exactly what the latest is. He said they do have about five contingency plans. They don't exactly know what the latest is. Ross Atkins, their general manager, said they have about five contingency plans in place. They could go play in Buffalo at Salem Field, their AAA affiliate. They could go down to Dunedin, Florida, where their spring camp is. What they would like to do, however, is play in a big league ballpark. And there are a number of options out there. 
Well, let's uh, talk about that. Uh, joining us for the next few minutes, he's the medical director of the Entry Antimicrobial... Mi- microbial... See, I, I can't even say that. He's at Sinai Health System, the University Health Network, and he's an infectious disease professor at the University of Toronto. Dr. Andrew Morris, uh, thank you for joining me, Antimicrobial. There you go. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm good. I'm better than you. <laughs> Excellent. So first of all, uh, let's talk about this. Um, Were you surprised by the statement yesterday from uh, the Pennsylvania Secretary of Health, Rachel Levine, uh, basically saying to add travelers to this region for any reason, including pro sports events, uh, is not a good thing? No, not surprised at all. um, For them, I'm sure it's the right decision. Now, uh, it was almost a a case of... uh, did the Pirates and the Jays not have a conversation with the medical people before? Because Tuesday we were talking about them playing at Pittsburgh, and then the announcement came out yesterday that the uh, medical people were saying, hang on here, that's not the case. You know, it's 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 hard to understand um, what kind of conversations are going on with Major League Baseball and public health. Um, you know, re- remember that there were two levels of public health for the Jays that approved the um, the plan before the federal government kiboshed it. So it, it's not as if there weren't some initial signals that said it was okay. Um, but so I'm not sure how those conversations occurred in 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 Pennsylvania. But what we do know is that you know Pennsylvania, uh, even though uh, Pennsylvania has a Republican governor, uh, there have been actually quite aggressive and ahead of the curve uh, regarding COVID uh, since the early days. Uh, they're one of the shining examples, actually, uh, in the U.S. So having this being rejected is no surprise to me at all. Now, if it's rejected in Pennsylvania, and we heard that the Jays are possibly talking about uh, maybe going in Bal- to Buffalo, I don't know if that's going to be the case. They've also talked about Baltimore as well, maybe going down to Dunedin, Florida. There's the other... Um, thing that has been floated that the Jays would be, if you will, almost like a traveling road show, literally playing all the games on the road. That particular part, does that not create a whole batch of more problems for a team that basically wouldn't be quote-unquote at home? Yeah, I think, you know, the Major League Baseball plan of all the Major League sports plans uh, in North America, in my mind, is the least well thought out and uh, provides the most risk to athletes because you've got people moving around a lot, um, especially going in and out of centers that really have COVID booming right now. And I, I, to me, that's that's the biggest risk. It, like if, if I were a Jay, my risk isn't, my concern isn't where I'm calling home. My risk is where am I visiting and where am I playing and how about the people who I'm playing against? and and all the people that I'm interacting with uh, throughout this time period. So, you know, we've got players in from teams in, you know, like for the Jays especially, you've got uh, Tampa, um, you know, with the Rays, and, and you know, we've got, um, you know, teams from Texas, uh, Arizona, California. You know, these are all COVID hotspots right now. And I, I just don't see Major League Baseball as having a, safe and workable solution for their athletes right now. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because the season is supposed to start with the first game uh, tomorrow night, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, actually, not tomorrow night. It's Thursday, so that's tonight. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci is supposed to throw out the first pitch at the Washington Nationals game, which is great. There won't be anybody there for, from a fan standpoint to see that. And I was going to ask, uh, is it too late for Major League Baseball to basically pull the plug on the season? And I guess now it is. I, I, it's first of all, it's never too late. I think that's the first thing. I, I don't think they're going to pull the plug, um, but because I think there's so much investment and in, in, in money involved, and you know, if uh, you know, if, if you just signed Mookie Betts to hundreds of millions of dollars, then it's more of an issue for you than anyone else. But, right? You know, this is, um, you know, with COVID, things change on a dime, and I think we all have to be willing to. Uh, change um, our position, our policies, and what we're going to do pretty rapidly on the basis of a a changing landscape. And, you know, uh, to me, the thing that's 
partially surprising to me is there isn't more pushback from athletes. Well, uh, there has been a few of them um, that have said that they aren't going to play, but we'll see how that unfolds. Doctor, uh, interesting, I I find, uh, that this whole thing of uh, the virus and the pandemic, as we know, it started in Wuhan, China, and then if you kind of follow the map of where it went, it kind of went to Seattle, Washington, and then it kind of, uh, if you will, exploded from there. Talk about this virus and basically why it has become uh, so effective, if you will, in doing its job, which is uh, basically spreading all over the world? Well, you know, I think the, the things that make it so likely and so easy to spread, one is most of the people who get infected have few, if any, symptoms. So you don't know who to protect yourself from. And if you are infected, you don't even realize that you're uh, potentially infecting other people because mild disease is fairly common with it. The second thing is most of the global population have no immunity to it whatsoever. You know, well over 90%, probably over 95% of the global population um, have no immunity to this whatsoever. And so if you're getting exposed, uh, you you know, you're very likely going to get infected um, if you've got, you know, close prolonged exposure. So I think those are the, those are really the two main reasons. And it's facilitated by um, what at least was our modern way of living, which includes lots of transit, lots of social interaction, and, you know, international movement. So it's not like this didn't happen with the Spanish flu in 1917-18. Uh, um, but, you know, travel was slower there. Um, and even though they had less knowledge of epidemiology and infectious diseases than what we have now, they knew quite a lot. It's just that things were just much more slow moving back then because there was less travel. Our guest is Dr. Andrew Morris from uh, the University of Toronto, an infectious disease professor. Doctor, we've heard a lot about uh, the second wave coming. All the medical people that we've spoken with are saying, you know, it's not a matter of if, but when. They're talking about the fall mixed in with the flu season. Do you share that sentiment that uh, we have to get through this first part first and then brace ourselves for phase number two? Yeah, I think, you know, we've seen enough of what's gone on everywhere else in the world to be pretty certain that we're going to see uh, a second surge. Um, when that's going to occur, it's it's really anyone's guess. I would be, to be honest with you, pretty happy if uh, we were able to put it off until the fall. I think we're going to see uh, an increase well before September 21st, um, you know, ju- just because, you know, we, we have already started opening things up And we are seeing slight blips here and there. And, uh, you know, so I think we are going to start seeing um, at least clusters here and there. Our real hope is that it's not a big wave, but it's just little blips here and there that we can hopefully get under control pretty rapidly. And, you know, that's, that's really figuring out what that secret sauce is to make sure that we can keep things under wraps and not uh, allow them to get out of control. Uh, that's that's really what we're looking for. And are you confident, doctor, that when that second wave hits, that the medical profession as a whole is, uh, and everybody, I guess, generally is more prepared for what will happen based on what we went through for the last four or five months? Um, not totally. Um, and first of all, I, I would point out, as, as I think you alluded to, it's not really the medical profession alone. Right. This is a societal thing, and this is, you know, government, public health, the public, it's, it's everyone. And, you know, I think right now we can look at, at Alberta where they're testing, which in wave one was fantastic. Um, now they are stretched to the limit and are being overwhelmed with uh, testing requirements because of uh, recent clusters in, in Alberta. And, you know, we haven't in Ontario, you know, we're sitting somewhere, our capacity seems to be sitting somewhere between uh, 30 and 35,000 per day, um, although, albeit with some backlog. But if we need double that, I'm not sure we're going to be able to handle that. Um, if, if we do, it hasn't been publicly announced or known that we have substantially higher capacity. And there are many other um, aspects to our response that I'm not 
certain we're going to be able to handle if we allow to get it out of hand. Thank you for the update. Uh, Interesting uh, twist and turns. Dr. Andrew Morris from the uh, University of Toronto, an infectious disease professor. We'll watch and see what happens with the Jays because, as we say, the season is looming not that far away. Thank you for the update. Much appreciated. My pleasure. So now let's uh, talk. We've talked from the medical standpoint. Let's talk about from the baseball standpoint. Uh, joining us for the next few minutes is a person who has been uh, really, really involved in this particular uh, story, and that is uh, Laura Armstrong, the Blue Jays beat reporter for the Toronto Star. Laura, uh, thank you for uh, joining us. Boy, this is uh, taking an interesting twist and turn every day, is it not? Yeah, it's a, it's a never-ending story. I mean, I remember thinking, asking Mark Shapiro, the Jays president and CEO, back at the, the first day of the suspension and saying, oh, I wonder, if, like, do you think that the border uh, being closed is going to be an issue for this team? And, I mean, it was far too soon to tell at that point. We had no idea what was coming. But to look back then and, and then know where we are now, it, it's just crazy. You know, it's and, and here we are because uh, this thing has, and, and it's been the case with the pandemic for months, but Saturday mm-hmm. afternoon we got the breaking news that uh, the federal government and uh, the Ontario government basically said no to the Jays, you can't play in Toronto, so fine. So you go on to step two. Now they're talking about Salem Field in Buffalo. They're talking about PNC Park in Pittsburgh, which appear to be the inside choice. Mm-hmm. And uh, now PNC uh, Park, well, actually, the Pennsylvania Health Secretary said to add travelers to the region for any, uh, uh, to this region for any reason, including for professional sports events, uh, risks residents, and members of both teams. Were the Jays, mm-hmm. were the Jays, in your opinion, caught flat-footed by that announcement yesterday afternoon? I think that I think that the Jays have more in the works than than we think, and I think that they've had more in the works that 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 than pub, has been made public for a long time. But I do think that we're getting down to the wire here now, and the the closer we get, particularly in the last week since that Saturday rejection by the Canadian government, uh, the more it seems like they're running out of options and they're running out of options fast. And you do kind of wonder. You haven't really heard anything from Major League Baseball. You haven't really heard anything from the Major League baseball's players association you're kind of wondering you know where where is everybody on this at this point because we're you know what 20 a little bit more than 24 hours away from the jays uh first pitch of their season and and they don't have anywhere to play you know Um, i mean tomorrow they'll be in tampa but next week they're they're sort of homeless essentially let's talk about how you're doing your job this uh, this mm-hmm. year uh, this is uh, i mean generally laura you make plans you cover spring training it's nice you're in florida the sun is shining it's all good you make your travel plans blah blah now of course this is totally different first mm-hmm. of all you talk about going to tampa first of all you're crossing the border that's a whole other issue um how has your job and how will you do your job in the future how has that changed from uh, several months ago yeah, it's definitely very different. I mean, a normal day at, at this time last year, we would have been coming up on the trade deadline. We would have been reporting on rumors that were going out who may or may not be traded, who may or may not come in, uh, which teams are going to really go for the World Series, which teams are, are maybe going to concede. Uh, and, and we would go to the ballpark every day. We would have the opportunity to talk to uh, the players in the clubhouse before the game started, at batting practice, and then after the game as well. Um, this season, obviously, we're just starting, so that that's unusual. Only 60-game stretch. And then in terms of travel, like it, it, for us at least, it's, it's fairly non-existent right now. Um, once you travel across the border, it's like you, you do have to quarantine. So that that's a question. How do you sort of quarantine for 14 days and then go to the ballpark for a three-game series? Like doesn't really make sense just days-wise. And then in terms of what the access you're getting at the ballpark, it's essentially just Zoom calls. We were able to go to Rogers Center when the Blue Jays were here for summer training camp, and we got to watch the live action. But in terms of like the interviews, we weren't sitting down with people one-on-one. Uh, we weren't able to come in contact with these players. It was everybody on the beat sort of doing it um, over the computer. So it's something that you can do from home, and I think it's something that a lot of beat writers, at least for the first little while, I mean, maybe that'll change if, if things lighten up, if the Jays reach the playoffs, perhaps. But um, right now, a lot of it's just being done remotely like everybody else in the world. You know, it's interesting, too, because, of course, the, the other thing when, uh, you know, you, you cover baseball is you like to get around the batting cage. It's where you get the best stories and you notice stuff and you form relationships and, uh, if you will, sources at the same time. That's kind of gone by the wayside, too. You can't do that either. No, exactly. It, it's definitely... 
I mean, it's, it's one of the best parts of the job. It's one of the, the most exciting elements. It's, it's where, as you say, you notice things, you hear little tidbits that you think, oh, maybe that would make a good story. And certainly that's not happening uh, right now. And then, you know, you also have the access to these guys to turn around and say, oh, well, I just noticed you doing that while you were hitting. Let's talk about it now. Um, and that's just that's just it's it's not it's not an option right now. So it's, everybody's definitely going to have to get creative over the next few months. So um, and uh, from what I understand, reading one of your stories, there's some really interesting tidbits when it comes to what players can and can't do this year. And one of the things that we all kind of smile at because we don't we know that this is going to be hard to stop. Apparently, there, uh, the players have been told that there's no spitting. <laughs> That's that one, I, and you're laughing, but that one I think is a little hard to uh, understand why they all of a sudden would change a lifelong habit. I mean, yeah, but when you think about all of the the conversations that we've been having over the last few months, it's like we're talking about air droplets and and uh, spreading germs, and spitting is like the most obvious version <laughs> of sp- spreading germs. Right? Personally, I'm all for it. I think spitting a baseball is gross. I know it's a lifelong tradition, but. I'm not here for it, so I'm happy to see it go. Um, but it's definitely going to be something that I don't even think the baseball players necessarily realize what they're doing. Kind of like high fives after a home run. Like, that's just sort of a given. And so it's going to be really interesting to see um, how they, like, try and curb those habits. I'm sure that there will be a couple of guys who sort of have to, like, have a nudge and say, you're not allowed to do that anymore. But that's just because it's their regular day-to-day, and, and they're used to it. And just like all of the rest of us, they're going to have to change some of their, their biggest habits. Laura, just before we wrap up, um, I'm going to ask you what your gut feeling is. Uh, we're, as we say, this is Thursday, and you mentioned that the Jays are obviously in uh, conversations. Um, they open up their season this weekend, and then they have a home series, so to speak, coming up. What's your mm-hmm. best What's your best guess as to what's going to happen with the Jays this year? And uh, When it comes to playing, if you will finger quote home games i mean at this point i i think that i don't expect them to start the season with a home venue named um because you know it's not tomorrow and i think that that might take a little while i think eventually they'll try and find somewhere to settle but i i don't necessarily know there's a potential for sure that they're going to be playing a lot of road games this season which means an extra long road trip for you have to pack a lot more laura exactly <laughs> I, I can tell the enthusiasm in your voice. You, <laughs> you're so happy about that. Laura, thanks very much for reading your stuff in the Toronto Star. Uh, best of luck going down to uh, Tampa Bay for, for the first series of the weekend. Stay safe, and uh, and we'll follow this story and see what happens. Thanks very much for having me. That's Laura Armstrong, the Blue Jays beat reporter, uh, getting down to Tampa Bay. Now, normally that would be, you know, Tampa Bay, Florida. You go down there and... Generally, you know, you have your days planned, but with all this stuff, with the COVID preparations and masks and testing, and it's going to be a whole, if you will, different ball game for her. And I know that uh, there may be a surprise or two which she will put in her column. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Tad Michaels. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free. So you never miss an opportunity, make sure that you rate it and review it.